Good morning, guys. Um, I, I have two, two kids, Roman, who's about to turn three, Finley, who's about to turn six, and they are completely opposites from one another. Uh, Finley is our daughter. She's six, and she is Christina 2.0. It's actually really crazy, but she's like exactly her. She's kind. She's compassionate. She's sweet. She wants to do the right thing. She's just an overall really good person. And then you have Roman, and Roman's awesome. Um, <laughs> Roman's three. He's a lot like me, and he could not be more different than his sister. He wants to be in charge. He doesn't want to be told what to do. He doesn't want your help, and he knows what he wants and wants to do whatever he can to get what he wants. And so it's really funny. So, for example, how this plays out, like last summer, the kids had just turned five and two, and Finley was finally learning how to swim without her floaties, and she's still kind of cautious about jumping in the pool. And Roman just, like, runs over to the edge and just falls in like it's not a big deal, uh, which is great when he has his floaties on. Um, when he doesn't, he doesn't seem to care. And so what happens is he'll like go in the pool and he'll like just have the floaties on. He wants to take them off. And we're like, okay, buddy, but you got to stand like near the stairs. And so he'll like get on the stairs and like try to like walk into the pool. And he, so you have to grab his hand. The water is like to his neck or into his chin. He's just like this. He's like trying to let go of your hand. I'm like, buddy, you can't do this. Or you know, if he doesn't have his floaties on, he'll just like, again, just flop into the pool. Like whether or not we're there to catch him. And so Finley, after seeing this, started to jump in the pool herself. But that's just who he is. He's always trying to do things on his own. He's very uh, self-reliant, which is not always a good thing. And as today, as we continue our story through the book of Exodus, we're going to see God confronting and trying to help the Israelites uh, with their own self-reliance. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 30. Uh, That will be this morning. uh, We're walking through the journey of God rescuing the Israelites out of Egypt and making for them his own nation from which he wants to bless the world. And so the last couple of weeks, we looked at the laws. Uh, Moses is on the mountain of Mount Sinai. The Israelites are kind of waiting for him down below. Uh, We saw God give Moses the instructions for how to build a tabernacle. Uh, which is the large tent that he was going to meet the Israelites in. And then last week we saw the priests and uh, all that they had to do to get consecrated to offer sacrifices and go into the tabernacle uh, so that the Israelites could experience the power and presence of God. And we've seen how all of this was but a shadow pointing to how Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of all these things. And so here's what's interesting, right? Here's what we know in life. Life is often greener. The grass is greener on the other side. And so sometimes I think if we look at the Israelites, we might say there's a lot of things that we don't want. Like we don't want to really live in the desert and wandering around. That doesn't seem very fun uh, without Wi-Fi. What would we do? I don't know. But one of the things that would be cool, it's like without a doubt, they know God is there and they know God is real because they're seeing like some really cool things. And I think for us in our context, we would really enjoy that. We'd be like, this would answer a lot of questions for us if we could see all of these things happen. And yet Israel would look at us and actually long to be in our position, right? Because they could see we get access to the presence of God without having to go through all of these things uh, because we are failures and we fall short. But God, through his grace, uh, did for us through Jesus what all of these sacrifices in the tabernacle was just pointing to. Now we are all, if you're a follower of Jesus, we are all priests and we are all indwelt with the presence of God. And so we're going to see that continue uh, today in chapter 30, uh, some of the reasons why the Israelites might wish they could be in our position. And so we'll pick it up uh, at chapter 30, verse 11. Again, this is after all of the stuff about the tabernacle, the priests, what they had to wear, the, uh, the altar, the incense, and all that sort of thing for them to experience God's presence. And here's what it says next in verse 11. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites to register them, 
Each of the men must pay a ransom for his life to the Lord as they are registered. Then no plague will come on them as they are registered. Everyone who is registered must pay half a shekel according to the sanctuary shekel, 20 geras to the shekel. Uh, this half a shekel is a contribution to the Lord. And so in the ancient world, you would only take a census for one of two reasons. Uh, one was for taxation, taxation purposes, to see who was all in your nation or in your kingdom so that you could tax them, or to prepare for war, right? To know how many men, particularly young men, you could recruit for battle. Now, Israel only ever took a census a few times in the wilderness and in the promised land, and it was always for war purposes or to be able to be prepared for an attack that was going to come their way. And so interesting, even when it comes to this purpose, God says, but you're never to do it, right? You are only to take a census if I tell you to. And in fact, if you are familiar with the story in 2 Samuel where King David, they're in the province land, uh, he takes an unauthorized census on his own because he wants to attack some outside nations outside the territory. And he wants to see how many young men he can for the, have for this battle. And so a plague comes upon Israel because what's happening is they're trusting in their own self-reliance instead of the Lord. And so a census happens a couple of times in the wilderness journey, again, only when God tells them to do it. And then you have, when they did it, this ransom payment or this atonement payment. Uh, there's some debate and discussion about what exactly the ransom payment represented, uh, why they had to do it. But it seems to be in some sphere, it has to do with this idea uh, that the census is a dangerous thing and they are to only do it if God tells them to do it and to rely on the Lord to provide and to trust in the Lord to protect them and not on themselves and not on their own might. So he tells them how to do the census. The next couple of verses say everybody that is, a, that is part of the census, so pretty much young men 20 years and older, would have to pay a, per, a, a half a shekel on their behalf, no matter if you are rich or, you are, or if you are poor. And then if you look down in verse 17, a few verses later, it then says this, the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 18, make a bronze basin for washing and a bronze stand for it. Set it between the tent of meeting, which is the tabernacle, and the altar, and put water in it. Aaron and his sons, who are the priests, must wash their hands and feet from the basin. Whenever they enter the tent of meaning or approach the altar to minister by burning a food offering to the Lord, they must wash with water so that they will not die. They must wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. This is to be a permanent statute for them, for Aaron and his descendants throughout the generations. And so if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you have the tabernacle, you have an altar, and then in between the altar and the tabernacle, you would have this bronze basin, and the priests would have to wash themselves either before offering sacrifices or before going into the temple or the tabernacle to experience God's presence because it is a serious thing. But it is a serious thing to do this and to go before the Lord on behalf of the Israelites, which is why the Israelites would look at us and be so jealous that in the midst of our faults, in the midst of our failures, Jesus has made it possible for us to not have to do all of these things, that his final sacrifice makes it possible for you and I to experience the grace, the presence, and the power of God, that, not, that instead of being washed by water like the priests, we've been washed by the blood of Christ. Now, and on top of that, again, if you were here last week, Brian was talking about the priestly garments. They would have to do all of these things. The, the garments would weigh over 100 pounds uh, just to offer an animal sacrifice or just to go into God. God's presence. And again, here's what this shows us. Again, if you've been here the last couple of weeks with the laws and the tabernacle uh, and the consecration of the priests, what this shows us is that God is holy. We are not, but God has made a way. You and I are not holy, but God is, and he has made a way for us to experience who he 
is, what we see here is that it is a serious thing to go before God. Now, we often don't think of that because of what Christ has done for us, but it shows us that it is a serious thing to go before the Lord. In other words, you don't just waltz into the presence of God, right? You're not just like, I'm here, what's up, like, let's do this thing. That's not what happens. And in fact, uh, in, the, in the book of Leviticus, we see later on that two of Aaron's own sons who were going before the Lord to offer a sacrifice do it in an unauthorized way, and they die. Because they didn't take seriously the seriousness and the holiness of God, right? And so what this was supposed to do, all of these rituals and the purification was supposed to show Israel that going before God is a righteous and is a holy and is a big deal. And so they had to prepare accordingly. You can think of it like today, in our our culture today, there are certain things uh, that you might, for example, dress up for, right? To mark the seriousness of the moment. So for example, if you go to a wedding, Right, most weddings you probably shouldn't up with, you shouldn't show up with shorts and a t-shirt and flip flops, right? Because that does not honor the bride and the groom. Uh, and in fact, when it comes to the wedding, typically we all dress up, and the bride and groom can do whatever they want because it's their day. I remember one of my really good friends in college. I never wore pants. He wore shorts, okay, <laughs> but he never wore pants. <laughs> And uh, I, in the four years, I might have seen him wear pants like two or three times because he went somewhere where you actually absolutely had to. If it was 20 degrees out, middle of January, doesn't matter, he's in shorts. And so his wedding comes, and I remember, you know, we're, uh, us and the groomsmen have a traditional, like, suit thing, whatever, and the bridesmaids and the, and the you know, the, the bride, they have all the traditional stuff on. And then here he comes, and he has his suit, jacket, and shirt, suit pants, but they were hemmed at the knees, so he had shorts, suit shorts, and they were awesome. But it was his wedding, so he's allowed to do that. Right? No one else better show up at shorts at their wedding, right? Because it's significant. And again, what we see here is just like this, that God is holy. You and I are not. And yet God and his grace has made a way, has made a way for Israel to experience who he is. Again, this changes how we view it. Again, without this uh, perspective, we see the laws and the tabernacle uh, and, and, and the priests. And we're like, man, that's a lot of work. Who would want to do that? Until you realize, oh, God is telling them exactly what they have to do to experience his presence and his power and his blessing. Like, I think that's a pretty great trade-off. And so for them, it was worth it. Uh, and so we'll continue at verse, from verse 22 uh, through verse 38, the rest of chapter 30, uh, we see things about oil and incense. Uh, now, I know we have some essential oil fans here in the house. And so when you see oil and incense, you're like, yes, preach it, brother. Um, I'm just going to summarize. Sorry. <laughs> but what we have in this section is the oil and the incense that was, to, the, the oil was to, put, was to be put on the tabernacle uh, at, at all times. It was supposed to be in the incense uh, were to be put, were to be burnt. I'm sorry, the oil would be on, put on the tabernacle and on the priests every time they did their duties. Uh, and the incense was to be burned in the altar of incense 24 7. And so this section talks about uh, what they needed to do in order to make the oils and the incense. Basically, they would take four types of material uh, and they would make the oils and the incense. But what we see here is that in order for them to do this, they would have to do this constantly. Right? They would constantly have to be producing oil, and they would constantly have to produce incense because, incense because it burned 24-7. Again, this was a constant reminder that God is holy, we are not, and God has made a way. That is what it is showing here, that God is holy, we are not, and God has made a way. Uh, and at the end of the day, the significance of this, again, is to show us 
that this is actually God's grace for the Israelites, that although they deserve it in no way, that they are no greater than any other nation or people on the earth, God has chose them to bless them so that the, to be a light of the world, that God actually wants to tabernacle. He actually wants to dwell among them, and he is showing them what it would take and inviting them to respond in such a way so that they can experience him. And so all these regulations and these ordinances, it actually in some ways or a grace to the Israelites because it's meant to help them fight against this idea of self-reliance, right? If they only had to do it one time and everything was set up and they were done, well, then they would forget often of their need and of their desire for God, that we cannot save ourselves. And so we need reminders to show us who God is so that we can experience his grace in his life. Like, let me just give you a really practical example of how important it is for us to have these reminders and how quickly we forget. Um, I am not a very good cook, uh, but what I am very good at is microwaving things, right? I developed this skill in college, and that add 30 seconds button, man, I am just a pro, just hitting it. But what happens, right? And you know this. If you're like me, you know how to work a microwave. What happens oftentimes? You get something out of the freezer, tells you how, what to do with it. You throw it away. You put it in the microwave. And right when you're about to hit that add 30 seconds button, what happens? Here's what happens. I'll show you what happens. Here's like a little meme for you. It says, reading cooking instructions off the bag I just threw out. That's me. I, I can't even microwave something that I saw two minutes ago without looking at it. Like, I need to be reminded. And so the Israelites have that. This is a constant thing for them to remind them that God's grace is with them and then not to rely on themselves. Because here's the reality. right? You and I, we don't drift towards the things of God, but the things of self. Right? In our own personal lives, we don't drift towards the things of God, of honoring him and loving people. We drift toward our own selfishness, what we want, when we want it, how we want it, making sure life is good for us. And so if we don't have things like the Israelites had this tabernacle and the temple and the incense and the Sabbath uh, and the oils and the sacrifices to remind them, they would drift, drift to things on their own, which they do even in spite of all these things. And the same is true for us, you and I. Naturally, on our own, do not drift towards the things of God, but the things of our self. And this is why this is good for them. And so if we continue, if you flip over to chapter 31, uh, we'll pick it up in verse 12. Uh, verse 1 through 11 is just God telling Moses to make sure for the tabernacle, to the priest, to all these things, that they follow these instructions like to the T. And then he gives them, he gives him a couple of people, uh, a couple of leaders in Israel that he wants to see oversee the building and the construction of the tabernacle. And then it says this in verse 12. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, so that you will know that I am the Lord who consecrates you. In other words, this is the pinnacle of all of the things we've seen from Exodus chapter 25 through 31. The tabernacle, the, the priest, all of these things are meant to point towards the Sabbath, where people, where the Israelites would take a day, one day every week, to rest and worship and reflect and remember God's grace and his protection and provision in their lives. It was a reminder that God is what is who sanctifies them. It is God who draws them to himself. It is God who gives his grace to them. It is not what they do. And it shows them also that God is serious about this, right? He is serious about all these things for their own good. And this is a good reminder to us as we see the Sabbath and the importance of it and what it's supposed to do. Here's what the Sabbath shows the Israelites. It shows us that your value is not in what you do, 
but in what God has done for you. This shows the Israelites that their value is not in their working hard and trying to be a good people and feeling like they did something great to deserve God's blessing. None of that is true. Their value, your value is not in what you do, but in what God has done for you, which again, this is completely opposite of what we typically think about, right? How does this work for us? Like we work to provide for ourselves, but if we're honest, to also try to prove ourselves. Right? We try to buy things and, and advance in our career, and but we might have some dreams, which is good to do. But sometimes, if we're honest, our interior motives would be like, look how great I am. Look at all the things that I accomplish. And we also know this. Right? If we don't believe that we've been provided for, then we work really hard. But if we trust that God is good and is over all things, then we will rest. Right? Think of it like this. Like maybe when you were in school and you had like a group project, or maybe now if you're working, you have your coworkers, or if you manage people, uh, there are certain people where you have to work with, when they have responsibilities, you're stressed out and you don't rest because you know they're probably not going to do a good job, right? And so you're thinking about it all the time. It's like, I, this isn't my responsibility, but knowing that they're probably going to drop the ball means that I have to think about this constantly. I don't rest, right? But if you trust them to do what they're actually supposed to do, then you can take a step back and not freak out about it because you know that things are going to be okay. And this is what the Sabbath would do for the Israelites, to remind them that if they really trust God, they will take a day to rest. Let me give you an example from my own life, right? So when Finley, our daughter, was three months old, uh, she was our first kid. Christina went out of town on this uh, bachelorette weekend. And so she, she left early Friday morning uh, and came back late Sunday night. So it was about three days, me and Finley, right? Three days, three months old, Christina's like, am I going to come back to a child that's still alive? And so what did she do? She left me a detailed list. Bedtime, nap time, bottle, when you feed, how much you feed, things to do, where you can go, oh, what, my diaper, what should be in my diaper bag. And I'm like, listen, I read the list. And when she left, what did I do? Did I follow the list? Of course not. I did it. Right? I, the diaper bag was a Walmart plastic bag that I took with me whenever we went somewhere. But guess what? We survived, right? And, of course, she was texting me throughout, right, because she was like, I don't know if he can do this, right? She didn't trust me. And so I am really proud to say the other week she went out of town. And so again, we have our two kids now. She didn't leave me a list which, or a list of instructions, which hasn't happened in a long time. She's like, okay, I know he can like manage without me. Uh, but oftentimes she'll ask me how the kids are doing. Well, so she goes out of town. It's around 12. She hadn't even texted me once. And I'm like, okay, right? She's actually trusting me. So you know what I did being the great dad that I am? Took the kids to this indoor park into our playground here in Raleigh, and there's like this six to eight foot rope climbing wall. And so Roman climbs up of it, and guess what happened? Nothing happened. Of course he didn't fall. Come on. But what did I do? I went, I went behind, I went under Roman, I took a picture like, like he's up like really high in the sky, and just sent it to her with no context. She didn't text me back. I'm like, she didn't even care. And so I'm like, I don't know if this, I don't know if this is good on me or bad on her. I don't know what it is. But she trusted that the kids would be okay, right? And this is what the Sabbath does. It reminds us that your value, your worth, your significance is not about you and what you produce. It's about God saying, you are my son, you are my daughter, creating people in his image that he loves unconditionally. It's not about you. It's about him. This is what the Sabbath does. And this is why God is extremely serious about it. Here's what he says next in verse 15. Oh, I'm sorry, in verse 14. He says, observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Holy means it is set apart to you. Whoever profanes it must be put to death. If anyone does work on it, that person must be cut off from his people. Work may be done for six days, 
But on the seventh day, there must be a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Anyone who does work on the Sabbath day must be put to death. Now, this is a pretty quick turn of events. He's right. He's like, take a day off or I'll kill you, right? Like that, you better do this. Now, I know this might be like, okay, what's happening here? My hope is that as we've gone through Exodus and we read things that might rub us the wrong way or might make us curious, that it would cause us to slow down and try to figure out what's happening. And so what we see here is that this indicates that this something very serious is going on, right? The Sabbath for the Israelites was a big deal. Now, this is, again, completely counterintuitive for us, right? Because who has ever had a boss who found out you were working on, the wrong, on your off day and said, you're fired? right? That don't happen, right? That's how you get a promotion. That's how you get a pay raise, right? That's how you get rewarded is when you work, when you don't actually have to. And yet God says, take a day off every week and remember my love for you so that you can experience my grace and my presence among you, right? It is me who provides. It is me who redeems, and it is not you. Again, this is part of what would make Israel be a light to the world, that the other nations would see them and say even how they structure their week is different. Now, what's interesting about calling Israel the light of the world is it's not just like some feel-good sentimental phrase, uh, but the promised land where they will eventually uh, end up uh, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in the Middle East. This was prime real estate in the ancient world. And it was actually right in the middle of all the great national or kingdom powers of their time. And so literally, everybody would know what Israel was doing simply because of where they lived. And interestingly, right, the Sabbath, interestingly, what is it supposed to be? A moment of rest and worship and refocusing on who God is. Yet even the Sabbath can be twisted for self-reliance, right? Even the Sabbath can be turned into something that we do for ourselves. Let me give you an example, a quick story. In Luke chapter 13, you can turn there or it'll be on the screen. Luke chapter 13, uh, verse 10, uh, it's, there's a story of Jesus. He's at a synagogue. Let me just read to you what happens here. As he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, a woman who had been there, who had been disabled by a spirit for over 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called out to her, Woman, you are free of your disability. Then he laid his hands on her, and instantly she was restored and began to glorify God. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty sweet. Right? That's pretty, like if somebody walked in here, and again, you got to think in this time, they didn't move, they weren't, it wasn't a transient society, you grew up, you born, you died pretty much in the same places, so you knew everybody in your community, right? And so if somebody came in here that most of us knew, that was struggling for 18 years, right, and it was healed, that would be pretty freaking sweet. Right? <laughs> that would be really cool, I don't know if I should say it that way. That would be really cool, right? We would celebrate, would we not? Like we would worship, like I don't know, I would have a party if that happened, right? This is awesome. And yet, here's how one of the religious leaders responds. Verse 14. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded by telling the crowd, there are six days when we should work, or when work should be done. Therefore, come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Right? The priest is like, whatever, that's cool and all. We don't do that on Saturday, which would have been their Sabbath, right? I mean... And so here's how Jesus responds. Understandably, after seeing this amazing thing happen, the priest is like, nope, don't do that. Here's what Jesus says, verse 15. But the Lord answered him and said, hypocrites, doesn't each one of you untie his ox or donkey from the feeding trough on the Sabbath and lead it to water? Satan has bound this woman and a daughter of Abraham for 18 years. 
Shouldn't she be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he had said these things, all of his adversaries were humiliated. But the whole crowd was rejoicing over the glorious things he was doing, and rightly so. See, what's happening here? In this moment, maybe with good intentions, the priests miss what is going on. You see, at the end of the day, the Sabbath was meant to be life-giving for the Israelites. It's a moment of rest and worship and the, and the encouragement and the reminder to reorient their hearts and their minds around the Lord. Uh, and it was, it was for them to experience the power and the presence of God. And now, at least to this religious leader, it had been, it had been replaced with this rigid, this rigid legalism, uh, which basically says this, where, where, where what we do or what we don't do is more important than why we do it. Right? Or in other words, you can think of it like this. You think of it like this. Uh, that legalism occurs when what you do is more important than why you do it. Right? Legalism is this idea that you have to do certain things for God to love you. And so what can happen is what you do, if you're not careful, can then become more important than why you do it. And why you do it is actually what actually matters. In other words, you think of it this way, that there is actually nothing in and of itself that is legalistic. Right? There is no action, there is no thing that you do in and of itself or that someone else does that is legalistic, but it's our motivations that can make it so. Right? And so, for example, let's just use some, some, thing, you know, some things that we're all familiar with, like reading your Bible or praying or fasting or being a good person, that sort of thing. Those things are great, right? But then if those things become something you have to do in order to be, quote unquote, loved by God or to gain God's favor then it's become legalistic, right? Instead of being something that you do to reflect, to reorient your heart and your mind in the power and presence of Jesus, it becomes something you have to do or else you're in trouble. Well, then that good thing has now become something that is legalistic. Again, nothing in itself is legalistic. It's our heart that makes it so, right? When we, when we make what we do more important than why we do it, then we can run into a problem, which is what this priest this, this, or this rabbi was experiencing here. And so the question then becomes for us this, right? You might be like, hey, this is interesting. This makes sense. The Sabbath, this rest. We, our culture is a little bit different than ancient Israel. And so what do we do with it, right? Is it a sin? Is it a bad thing? If we don't take 24 hours and worship and rest, if we work, like if we pull out our email, a couple of, like, is that a bad thing? What do we do? Um, do I need to take, in other words, think of this. Do I have to take 24 hours to worship and rest? Um, I, I would say this. I think maybe, uh, and I think it's wise, but I wouldn't say it's necessarily so. Or put it this way, I wouldn't say it's a sin not to do that. I think it's wise to have healthy rhythms, but not necessarily a sin, and here's why. As we have seen as we've gone through the book of Exodus, that Jesus is fulfilling all of these things, all of these things. The Sabbath is no, no different, right? He, he, he fulfills the laws, the tabernacles, the priestly duties. We also see that Jesus is our ultimate rest, he is our rest, and because we're followers of Jesus, rest is no longer confined to a day, but to an ever-present reality and the person or work of what Jesus has done. Again, this is why Israel would look at us and be amazed that we can experience God's rest whenever. This is why in Hebrews chapter 10, the last thing I'll read, uh, the author of Hebrews chapter 10 is all, all about the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. And then the author says this in verse 11. It says, every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. So he's talking about the sacrificial system that time after time, every time Israel sinned, which is why it was a consistent thing, right? The priest's job was never done. 
And so verse 12 is pretty revolutionary when it says, but this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. What do you mean he doesn't have to do this time after time? This is what Jesus meant when he's on the cross about to die and says, it is finished, that I have accomplished it. In other words, what we see happening here is that rest is found in the presence and power of Jesus. Somebody say Jesus. Okay, now say it like you like him, right? Rest is found in the presence and power of Jesus, not in you, not in your family, not in your job, not in your house that you live in, not in the car that you drive, not in what iPhones uh, you have, not how good you are at video games, uh, how much money you have in the bank. It is found in none of those things, how much money you've got in crypto right now, and it's going crazy, right? None of those things. Rest is found in the power and the presence of Jesus, which is why it is not a legalistic thing or why for believers today, I would say, uh, you don't necessarily have to have 24 hours every day or once a week where you do nothing and rest and remember and worship. However, I would say this. I think it is wise to have rhythms in our life, to have days once a week or moments in our day-to-day lives where you and I create small practices to, uh, to reorient our heart on the Lord. Right? Again, so often we view going to church or reading our Bibles or praying or giving or being a good person or not sinning, like we view those as, as, as ends and of themselves, when really those are just ways for us to experience God's grace. In other words, they're not things you better do or else. They're things that you do if you want to experience God's encouragement and refreshment in your life. So I want to encourage you, right? Like being here on a Sunday, the physical gathering of the believers are one of the practices that are wise for us to do for us to reorient our hearts on the Lord, right? And we miss this if we don't have rhythms in our life. And so here's what I would say. I think it's important, right? Gathering to worship, uh, times of Bible reading or prayer or community groups, like these things are good. We should have rhythms in our life, but we should also be okay when we miss the mark. Right? We have to be okay when we miss the mark and not view what we do as legalism that we have to do or else, but as something that God is inviting us to do so that we can experience more of who he is. In other words, if I could, put this, if I could sum this up another way, here's what I would say. That self-reliance is the antithesis to the presence of God. Self-reliance is the antithesis to the presence of God. Of God. If you want to experience God's grace, His power, His presence, His love, His mercy in your life, then you need to know it's not about what you do, but about doing things that allow you to experience who He is. This is an invitation. This is not do things so that you're a better Christian or you're a better person. It's do these things if you want to experience more of His grace in your life. And so we need reminders. We need rhythms to allow us to reorient our hearts on him, but reminding us that these things are not actually what saves us, right? This is the good news of the gospel. The gospel is not about what you do or what Israel does, but what God has done for us, that Jesus came to fulfill the law, the tabernacle, the priesthood, and the Sabbath on your behalf and on my behalf, that we fall short, and in his grace, God says, I am going to make a way, that I am holy, I am righteous, I am just, and you are not, but I will make a way. And so Jesus is the invitation to rely on his sanctification, how he grows you, his justification, how he took took your place and my place on the cross, defeated sin and death, so that all of us, any one of us can respond to the invitation of Jesus. That even today, no matter what your last week looked like, no matter what last night might have looked like, that God's grace is available to you, not when you turn your life around and do X, Y, and Z, but right now when you and I repent, ask God for his grace and his presence, and he always, always delivers. 
If you want to experience more of God's grace in your life, you have to fight against relying on yourself, proving yourself to experience who he is. Self-reliance is the antithesis to the presence of God. Let's pray.